like the music of the spheres, isn't it, Art? The melody of the universe. Everything. Yeah. Mysterious, ain't it? Oh, sweetly so. Oh, look, Shuri. Look, let's give a tempo. So. Welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we are continuing all 12 of the 1935 nominees with the musical comedy Naughty Marietta starring Jeanette McDonald. I need a Vox explainer for the plot summary for this Wikipedia summary, because <laughs> the original Naughty Marietta operetta is one of the most confusing plots I've ever seen in my entire life, and this movie's plot is so clear and concise and has such a better through line in comparison, but it's still a little bit like, wait, what's happening? Why did we do that? Is this going to be important or not? for a lot of the runtime. Yeah, I just started looking over the operetta summary and I'm just gonna completely erase that from my mind. Yeah, no, you need a diagram for it because... (laughs) There are way more characters involved in the operetta than there are in this film. Also, the, like, through line of this entire film, like, the actual plot of this film just doesn't occur in the operetta. There is just no runaway princess bride in the operetta, as near as I can tell. That's just for the movie, and it's a really good hook for this in comparison to the, like, weird ghost, but also not a ghost. Also, there's a double ghost. Like, it's so weird um, in the operetta, and this one has a fairly simple plot, which is there's a princess who's getting married off to an old Spanish nobleman, uh, and she's like, this old guy sucks, and I want to... She's a she's a French princess. Yes. But that's yeah. almost completely unimportant. <laughs> the only thing that actually matters is that this guy is old. The main thing that makes it important that she's French is that when she runs away, she runs away to New Orleans. Right. Uh, but honestly, she could... Whatever. Um, on the way, she gets... <laughs> attacked by pirates that doesn't matter at all except that she gets almost immediately rescued by is he a lieutenant what's his rank again captain Captain. by this captain named richard warrington they immediately fall in love in that way where it's like i hate you well i hate you more when are we gonna have babies Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that at length, but go on. She goes to New Orleans. She's gotten on this boat under the false pretense that she's part of this apparently real life 18th century program where women who just don't have better prospects in France get on a boat to uh, like be married off to whoever likes them in New Orleans. But she doesn't want to get married off to anyone, so this seems like it was kind of a poor plan on her part. (laughs) And she claims to be a woman of ill repute to get out of having to marry somebody. That works for about 15 minutes of the film and lets her work at a marionette theater for a very weird musical number. 
But then the French and Spanish nobility find her, try and get her to marry the guy she was originally supposed to marry. But then Captain Warrington comes because he's in love with her now. And the two of them run off together into the frontier. This is, of course, skipping all of the musical numbers, which I want to get into. But that's the that's the overall plot of the thing. That is the overall plot of the thing. So... I actually ended up watching this movie probably three times because I literally did not have a time this week where I was not having to do something else. So it was like, if I just have it on in the background. Yeah, that makes sense. Three times. It will all sink in. And it did. And there were points where I was like, okay, I have to rewind this because I have no fucking idea what's going on, which I will say like. From scene to scene, the development of this, I hate you, no, I hate you more, when are we going to have babies relationship, is really rough. Like, it's very, very abrupt. Like, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who goes to see Romeo and Juliet and is like, oh, this is bullshit. How could they fall in love and then kill themselves in like a week? But there is, like, at least... In that, the suspension of disbelief is not that difficult for me anyway, because they're immediately attracted to each other. They immediately want a bone and are upfront about it. Whereas in this, it's like, I hate you. Get out of my room. Leave me alone. And he's like, oh, yeah, you hate me? Hmm. Well, fine. I will get out of your room. But only after I spend five extra minutes getting out of your room to really get under your skin. Here's the weirdest thing about it is that the thing doing the heavy lifting for their relationship is that both of them are so horny for singing. Yeah, that's true. Like... There's basically no development to why they go from disliking each other to liking each other, except that, like, he's a really good tenor and she can hold a high note. And the moment they realize those things about each other, they're both so fucking horny. (laughs) And otherwise, they hate each other. Well, what's interesting to me about that is that this is like a trope that came up in, oh, what was that? really boring but less offensive version of Here Comes the Navy in 1934. Oh, yeah. Flirtation walk. That's the one. Yeah. And I guess, like, I guess this is the 30s equivalent of, like, falling all over yourself for a rock star. But the stuff that people perform that gets them horny for each other is so, so sexless and chaste. Like, this is not Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's literally just that he can hold a note for an extra five to ten seconds. And the things that they sing where, like, they just spend inordinate amounts of time gazing longingly at the other one. I'm like, really? This is getting you hot? Like, okay, weird, but whatever. And they do have this one moment that if you blink or if you're like returning work emails, you would miss it, which is he takes her out to show her the town. I was about to say, is this that kind of terrible banter scene where they wander around town just before the French nobility get there to take her back? Yes, they actually get there at the end of the scene. It's like, oh, the French nobility are here. There's a ship. And for some reason, even though she hasn't confessed to him, he's like, oh, well, we've got to we've got to hide you. We've got to get out of the street. It's like, did did New Orleans just go absolutely ape shit whenever the, 
the nobility showed up and it was like, it's going to be a riot. We got it. We got to get off the street. It was very confusing. Yeah, that whole scene bugged me in the way where it's like, you know, when somebody tries to write a Shakespeare parody and you're like, the problem with this is you're not nearly as good of a writer as Shakespeare. Yes. It had that sense of patter of like, oh, these are very Elizabethan jokes. And it's like, yeah, but they're not good. Yeah. You're really doing, you're really belaboring the setup to get to a punchline. They just do these weird observations on nothing so that somebody can do a like linguistic joke about goats. <laughs> Well, and the first way that he tries flirting with her is he picks up a shrimp from a fish seller and says something about, like, how even shrimp can be passionate lovers. And it's like, really, you're going to pick up something that stinks to (laughs) make this point. Because, like, these shrimp are not refrigerated. Like, this is the 18th century in New Orleans. It's hot. The shrimp probably smells horrific. And she's like, well, it doesn't look very romantic to me. And I'm like, yeah, this, this, what the fuck is this scene? Yeah, it's, it's very strange. I want to take a moment out of smack talking the specific detail of this film to explain why I kind of liked it despite itself, which is an incredibly specific bit that gets me every time, which is... In almost the first scene of the movie, the main character starts writing the song that's going to be the climax of the movie. And they occasionally, like, head fake toward it as the, like, spine of this movie. They sort of do the first few notes of Sweet Mystery of Life at Last I Found You, like, eight times. And it works for me every time <laughs> and it's done really well too it's not like in broadway melody where they just sing the song 12 times right they tease you with it yeah before you get the full thing that's done really well and i'm not i mean i don't think this is a bad movie i think it's kind of a mess it's really weird but it's not boring it has one offensive comment that's not even really a joke and like otherwise it's kind of fine yeah i mean the thing i would say about it this is one of those things where it just kind of gets dragged down by the technicalities because there's no there's nothing to really recommend it in the way where i would brush almost everything we've said so far and almost everything that is a problem to me about this movie off. If it was like, yeah, 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 all that stuff, except this one thing that's amazing. And the closest thing we've got to that is Sweet Mystery of Life at Last I Found You, which is a really good number and does hold the last act together, but is not like watch the whole movie for this. No, no, not at all. There are characters in this movie that I desperately wanted more of, specifically Madame Denara, who is the governor's wife, who 100% looks like a New Orleans madam of the 18th century. (laughs) What's her deal? I want to know her story here. That's why I went and read the Wikipedia page for the operetta, because my immediate impulse was like, oh, this is just the version of this that has 15 extra minutes of her that is great. And this is just a mess because it's been trying to do two and a half hours in an hour and 45. And no, 
they just completely did a different plot for this. This does seem to be a weird 30s theme of like, just take the setting and the name and make a totally different story when we put it on film. Yeah. That's how Bengal Lancer was, aka the worst movie ever made. Yeah, I I don't know what movie you're talking about. Um... <laughs> Uh, one thing I really want to say about Jeanette McDonald's performance in this, I did not find her as a character to be nearly as charming as she was in The Love Parade, which I hated, but I hated it because it treated Jeanette McDonald like shit. But I really like that she got away from that super fluttery Disney Snow White vibrato, and she really shines vocally in this movie in a way that the stylistic choice of her character in The Love Parade, I think, really like cut off how talented she really is. Yeah, I think she does a really good job with all of the musical numbers in this. And I also think in the first act... Really, it's just the romance part where she kind of falls apart performance-wise, and I'm not blaming her for that. Yeah. But in the first act, when she's got to do the everybody in this town loves the princess bit, Mm -hmm. which is surprisingly hard to do. For instance, they kind of try and do it in One Night of Love, and it's garbage. Um, (laughs) Like, it doesn't work at all there. And I think it works so well in this movie. I think the musical number where she sort of dances all around through the whole building full of musicians and everybody it's just a big old party and everybody's loving it sequence is great there's a nice sort of setup where her like is it her music teacher or purposefully un unclear right but somebody who is definitely like higher class but not so high class that they live in a palace who lives in that building and he's like, oh, I can't believe the the commoners are doing their folk songs. And she like floats up the stairs and is like, I love it. Let's hang out with the commoners and sing. And it works. It totally works. The scene immediately following that, though, is one of the most incredible sets we've seen so far in a movie. I don't know where she is supposed to be. I mean, I guess it's like a convent, but it certainly doesn't look like any convent I've ever seen. Where she's in this room that looks like the most grand living room ever, and the window is a giant two-story birdcage, and there's all these birds flitting around in it, and you're like, is that just a cage in the- nope, that's the window. The window casement is this, like, incredibly gorgeous birdcage. A weird thing about this movie is how often there's a set like that or a scene like that where you're like, God, that must have been so expensive. This must be really important. Nope, this is just a weird cast off scene. Yeah, we never go back there. We never, there's like no, there's no explanation for it at all. It's just really gorgeous. And then that's where we, where we meet the Duke, Don Carlos. And there's actually kind of a funny joke in there where they have these like very somber matrons dressed all in black with black veils come in and they show her what is going to be her wedding wear and it's all black and she says did someone in your family die (laughs) and don carlos who is like i guess habitually having an allergy attack because he's always very sniffly and and snotty he's like oh No, it's just the traditional colors of my house. Yeah, he's also a weird character because even though he's like the, I guess he's the Baxter, it's really like, it's weird because the actual sort of opponent 
is her uncle and not Don Carlos, who's kind of just this... He barely comes back in the back third. Yeah, he's just really there for like three minutes for it to be funny that he's like perpetually unwell and sort of nerdy. Yeah. The other scene I was going to bring up about huge expenses for no real reason is when she's kind of putting her plan into motion and getting on the boat. The scene where they see the boat off and she kind of does a little scheme to get away from the cops has like hundreds of people waiting at this dock for a scene you could effectively cut. Like nothing happens in that scene. That was one of the things that I had to rewind because I was like, did did I miss something? What 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 happens with all these people waiting at the dock? Nope. Yeah, no. They just got like 300 extras to do this weird joke where she waves to a guy and then the guy gets on the boat. But the guy never becomes important. No, she pretends that it's her brother. That actually was also another bit that I thought was quite funny where she's like, goodbye, brother. Don't let grandfather sit outside too much or whatever. And the guy at first is like, what the fuck is going on? And then he gets it and he's like, oh, sweet. If I play a log, I'm going to get to hook up with this hot girl because I'll get on the ship. And they try to get him on the ship with her. They're like, fine, your brother's going with you. Right. The fact that the plan backfires doesn't ever come up in any way. No, like, does he even actually get on the ship and go to New Orleans? It's super unclear because if he doesn't, then why did the cops just let it go? Or not the the guards. They're cops. But like... (laughs) Yeah, friggin' friggin' cops. But if he did, then why do we never hear about him ever again? Similarly, like, there's the super duper dark thing where the pirates just shoot a woman. And they, like, kill all of the sailors. Yeah, and you're like, boy, this is gonna have consequences. Like, we're in it now. And then, like, three minutes later, they're just like, we've arrested the pirates. Say goodbye to them for the entire rest of the film. Yep. (laughs) And, like, when I say this movie is confusing, it's confusing like that. Again, the through line of the plot really is very clear, doesn't really take up all that much time. It's just that each new thing that happens is announced with hundreds of people or with a woman getting shot or with everyone going, this is the only way you'll ever live. And then they just throw it out five minutes later because it was really just there to get you to the next musical number. Right. And so it's really confusing as you're like trying to work out what is and isn't important because the signifiers for that are just all off in a way I can't even really figure out. Like when she has the three people who are trying to marry her and then we like never see them again and no one ever competes for her ever again. Right. But there is a funny one in that too where there's like the younger guy who says to his mom who creepily is coming along for this. He's like, mother, can I have a blonde? And she says, mother, may I have a blonde? (laughs) I also like the guy who just goes around and for some reason his one test is trying to figure out how their right arm socket is working, just interrupts conversations in this weird scene where everyone is sort of competing for husbands, just interrupts women who are having conversations with men who could be their husbands to grab their arm and just twist it around, not in a painful way, but just to see whether their rotator cuff is all right or not, I guess, (laughs) and then wanders off. (laughs) 
I mean, I guess, like, you know, people didn't have mixers. It was like, is she going to be able to mix up some batter with this shoulder? Yeah. And, like, that it's never explained. Like, all of the specific bits when you're in a scene are good. It's the sort of traveling from one scene to another, trying to work out what from the last scene is something that actually needs to be something you remember. Right. Where the movie kind of falls apart. I think it's actually sort of like the jokes tend to land moment to moment. It's only like you keep having these like refrigerator moments of like, wait, why did that happen? Where where are we going? Yeah. What? And and again, it is that kind of if you're going to write a Shakespeare parody, you better be as good as Shakespeare kind of thing cuz there's some moments of clever dialogue and there are some clever jokes. The problem is that they don't seem to have any actual weight to the plot. They have almost a sketch-like quality. Like the thing with her fake brother in Marseille when they're leaving and they're on the dock. Like the, you know, mother, can I have a blonde? There's the thing where she is at the marionette theater and he comes in and she tells him that he's most unwelcome there. And he says, you know, oh, well, would I be welcome somewhere else? And she says, yes. And he leaves and then she walks out and he's there and she's like, well, he says, well, I'm somewhere else now. So, and instead of that being like, Ugh, she smiles at him about it. Yeah, it is very much like, well, we're in act three, so we have to be in love now is how them being in love plays. It's exactly like that. That's the whole like, you know, let me show you the town, even though. 30 seconds ago, you were like, get the fuck out of my face. And what's weird is that there are all of these moments that could be a hook for their relationship to kind of thaw. They never use it as that. I'm specifically thinking of the moment where he ends up like paying her rent because she's given all of her money to this other poor girl that came across from France. And, like, I think she's justified in going, like, hey, stop inserting yourself into my life, get the fuck away from me. But also, she just does that to every gesture he does to her until this weird moment where she's charmed by him bothering her a hundred and thirty second time. <laughs> right. And, like, there is no sense that the sort of standoffishness being dropped until it just suddenly is. It's just like, okay, well, the hundred and thirty sixth time was not the charm but the 137th is there's no thawing it's just like no 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 yes but then then they're in love because i think we should talk a little bit about the sort of final governor's mansion party sequence which was the other thing that made me just sure this was a cut down operetta thing because i was certain that this was one of those like put a happy ending on king lear things <laughs> Because the ending is so jarring. Yeah. It's just played, like, for so long of, like, there's nowhere you can run. They will find you everywhere. The power of France spans the globe. There's absolutely nothing you can do. And he's like, we just got to cover the Appalachians and then we'll be fine. Like, we just got to, like, go west a little bit and then we're good. That's the wrong mountain chain for that. But you... but you, It's not even that... Like, they... Uh, why did they not go after them? Yeah. <laughs> they just like march out of New Orleans and like, nah, it's cool. Yeah. Everything's fine now. They'll never find you. 
And it's like they crossed the Atlantic fucking ocean. I think they could like deal with a little bit of Louisiana. Right. And like they've made a big thing of like, this is the most important political marriage in a hundred years. Seems like they'd like try something. Like wouldn't Yeah. Wouldn't just let this go. Well, I mean, one would think, but a- apparently not. It's very confusing as to how it all sort of works out. I will say that there's a couple of interesting little I don't even know if you would say that they're Yeah, they're sort of subtextual things in here that are like a little well, one is a little dark. The whole like you are going to marry Don Carlos, but the king has arranged it so you'll live at Versailles and she says, you know, I see what this is. This is just a ploy for me to be at Versailles. The king doesn't care who I marry and I won't be part of that insidious I don't know what she says exactly, but it's implied that the whole reason she is being married off to Don Carlos is to get her married, but she's intended to be a mistress to the king. And that's why she's going to be staying at Versailles. And that's like, wow, that's that's like a lot to put in a 1935 movie. I did not get that at all. I, I, I think you're right, but I totally read that as like an extension of the thing where she's like super good nobility. Where like, now I want to let you know she's a French noble in the 18th century, but she knows how excessive and horrible Versailles is. And she would side with the people if the French Revolution were happening during the period of this movie. That like, she just has a moral stance against Versailles was how I read it. But again, I think you're right. I only really picked up on that on the third time. And it was because of the way that she was like, really physically repelled by it. I was like, oh, gross. That sucks. Yeah, definitely run away. Uh, The other thing, which is actually quite, I think, cool and good, is that there is no implication at any point, nor do they ever talk about the two of them getting married. She says, I'm not going to get married. He says, I'm not going to get married. They keep this up through the whole thing. And then when they run away together, there's no like, okay, now we're going to run away to get married. They love each other and that's cool, but they don't see any reason why that should require them to get married. And I'm like, that is surprisingly strange that that was left out, particularly considering that this is the first year that the Hayes Code is really starting to be enforced. And I'm surprised the Hayes Code didn't pick up on that and say like, well, you have to at least make it clear that if they're running away together, they're going to they're going to make it legal. Yeah, I guess they figure they leave it implied. But yeah, it was kind of refreshing that there was no... Because when they do first meet, both of them protest so much about how they never want to get married. That you're like, oh god, the inevitable scene where both of them say they're ready for marriage now is going to be interminable. And then that scene just never happens. Yeah, it was actually pretty refreshing. (laughs) Yeah. Because, yeah, that, well, as long as somebody, the right person comes along, they're going to change their mind thing. Didn't, it didn't happen. They fell, like, hardcore in love with each other because, again, they're super horny for singing. But it, it didn't change their stance on marriage, at least not textually, at least not explicitly. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. Mostly not racist, except for one small musical number where they refer to the savages repeatedly, and that wasn't great. No, that wasn't amazing. And, like, also, it's so weird because the one actual reference to Native Americans from Warrington is actually generally positive, and it's not like, ah, imperialism sucks, but it is like, hey, they're out there doing their thing, (laughs) and we're kind of just here screwing that up for them. 
But then the song he and his men sing is like, what we do is kill Indians. Hooray. I totally missed that. Which which song is that? When he first shows up, mm. the like marching song he and his men sing, and specifically the song is what says savages as like who they're going out and killing. Uh, um, well, yeah, I somehow missed that. But I also like that song is really brief. It kind of comes in out of nowhere and goes out out of nowhere, so I I missed it. Yeah, I really genuinely wouldn't have noticed it, except that I was texting you about, like, one thing I'll say for this movie is it's not racist, and pressed send, and immediately heard that line, and was like, well, um... (laughs) Never mind. That does seem to be the thing with movies in the 30s. Just annoying as hell. I was happy the one African-American little boy in this movie isn't treated particularly racistly. He's just kind of there for a second. Because I thought when I saw him, like, oh, here we come to the scene where we're racist. And then he's just kind of sitting there looking cute in a nice hat. I also totally missed that there was ever a black person in this movie. It's it's extremely brief at the party at the end. Does he even have a line? No. Yeah. I think he just takes Warrington's hat when Warrington comes in. I think in three seconds they managed to imply he was a slave, but also it's 18th century New Orleans. So, like, that's not really racist. That's just historically accurate for how shitty white people were. Yeah, that's that's true. It is kind of interesting that there aren't servants that you see in this movie who are black. Not in France. Well, I mean, when they're in New Orleans, you've got literally just this one that I didn't even see because he's in it for three seconds. Yeah, you're right. There is kind of a like, so who's actually doing the work around here exactly? bit you could say about that yeah i mean i guess like it's not a good thing that there were no like job opportunities for black actors from this movie particularly considering it was set in new orleans but given how poorly hollywood handles having any black people in a movie right now yeah or any non-white people at all yeah one is kind of like well I guess if the only way we can avoid racism is to not let white movie makers have black people in their movies. Yeah, there's several levels on which I am glad Naughty Marietta did not do a deep dive into the transatlantic slave trade. But yeah, it is weird how this three second almost cameo by a little kid is pretty much the extent of acknowledging that in the film. But you know, good good for him that he got a that he got a role and hopefully got paid. Not that I imagine the Hollywood studio system was particularly Yes good for child actors or black actors and probably almost certainly not when the two intersected. Yeah. Should we rate this movie? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll go so, um, on. Th- I'm gonna give it a four. Th- I'm gonna give it a four. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna do a like on three. Let's both say it thing because I was kind of <laughs> thought we were both gonna go for four. Um, but yeah, I it's it's not quite fine, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not something that I'm not angry about it the way that I have been about a lot of other movies we've watched recently. It wasn't. It wasn't like, um, oh, what was the Dickens movie we just watched? David Copperfield. What the Dickens was the movie? David Copperfield. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite as like, oh, yeah, it's a movie as David Copperfield was. But it is it is super confusing and kind of a mess. And the editing is really is really rough. 
I kind of wonder almost if they shot more of this movie and just a lot of it ended up on the editing room floor because it feels really jumpy. I could definitely see this being a two hour, 20 minute movie where somebody was like, no, you gotta have it at a tight hour 45. And this was the result is that it ends up being very confusing and very like very jumpy that scenes are quite short that there's not a whole lot of emotional development except for the musical numbers that end up being that end up feeling like pretty long most of the time. I was gonna say I feel like there's more development around justifying the musical numbers than there is around our characters. We spend a lot of time in scenes like setting up this marionette theater so we can do the big marionette theater number. Oh my god, wait. How have we not talked about how weird <laughs> that scene is? It's extremely weird. And how creepy. Like, first of all, they're not marionettes. It's like they're just sticking their heads through a sheet that has sort of a body printed on it, but it's a really tiny body with a really big head because it's a, you know, full human-sized head. And it is not the best puppet theater I've ever seen. (laughs) No, you, like... I liked that scene as a, like, retroactive justification for how excited everybody was that the girls were there earlier in the movie. (laughs) Like, wow, they really are hard up for entertainment in New Orleans, huh? They really gotta, like... Yeah, New Orleans has not quite cemented itself as, like, the, the center for hedonism and vice in the new world. Yeah, if that if that's the hottest ticket in town, <laughs> then like no wonder it like every time a ship comes in, everyone is so excited. Like, oh, I could get married and it will save me from the incredible boredom of my life which is just going to the fucking marionette theater. <laughs> yeah, it was a super super weird scene and really amateurish and so much of the movie is built around justifying it Mm -hmm. like there's fully two scenes before it setting it up and another scene afterward that references it it is plot wise i think the single most important thing that happens in the in terms of screen time given to it oh yeah it has the most screen time given to it of anything in the film And it's just that weird thing where you put your head through a curtain and then make the weird little puppet body you've got dance. And... Yeah, it's... (laughs) Yeah. I was vicariously embarrassed for everyone involved watching that scene. It's also so weird, now that I think about it, that it's like, okay, we've built the three-story birdcage. We have the 500 people that we need for the seeing the boat off scene. All to justify our big showstopper number, this weird marionette (laughs) theater. That, like, any eight-year-old could pull off with a sheet and some markers. That's what we're using the power of cinema for. That's what we can only do on screen. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, four, I think, is, like, a totally fair rating for this. Like, is it amazing? No. Is it even, like, is it even mediocre? Like, no, because it's too confusing and not well edited. And again, the incredible buildup to the weirdest, most 
chintzy scene ever. Uh, but it's not, like, horribly offensive, and it wasn't, at least it wasn't, like, two hours long. No, it's kind of a mess, but, like, it has its moments, is what I would say. Yeah. But as for watch this film, don't watch this film. No. The, the moments it does have are memorable, but they're few and far between, and they're not, like, they're not memorable enough that you would want to see them happen. Like, we told you what they are. <laughs> right, and they also all require so much setup. Like, the like, I think just if you were watching the performance of Our Sweet Mystery of Life by itself, you'd be like, this is okay. You have to watch the whole movie for it to really be a moment, and, like, watching the whole movie is not worth it. And similarly, most of the jokes... And the staging of it isn't that exciting. No. Like, the only thing that makes the staging exciting is that, like, the character moment of him being dragged away is makes it exciting. But again, if you don't have that context, then it's just, like, them singing across a room. Right. And, like, I think most of the jokes, to a smaller degree, have a similar thing of, like, this only works if you've seen the previous two scenes. Or, like, this only works if you know how they met. And, like, none of them are good enough for that. No. Skip it. Yeah, skip it. Which brings us to next week. Yeah. Les Miserables in what I'm sure will be one of the top eight productions of Les Miserables we watch for this project. (laughs) I gotta tell you, I don't have high hopes for this movie. And the reason I don't have high hopes for this movie is the casting of Jean Valjean and Javert. Yeah. Because Valjean is played by Frederick March. And I already don't buy it. Yeah. Both of these are good actors and they're both so horribly miscast. Yeah. And Lawton as Javert. Were they, what did Lawton have on everybody? (laughs) Cause here's the thing. Charles Lawton, perfectly fine actor, but there's this weird thing where it's just like, you know, who'd be great for this? Charles Lawton. Did you just throw a dart at a dartboard? Like why? (laughs) Did you throw a dart at a dart at a dartboard that only had the name Charles Lawton on it? <laughs> right. Same with uh, the casting he almost got on David Copperfield, where it's like he's a fine actor, but why would you go to him for this? Yeah. No. W. C. Fields was a much better choice. Yeah. Really, everything that we've watched with him in it since Henry, like. Private Life of Henry VIII has been, why would you cast Charles Lawton for that? That's not what he's here for. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not feeling, uh, not feeling a whole lot of hope about this coming film, but we'll, we'll see, you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be great. And both the good news and the bad news is that it's an hour 48 for Le Miserable. Yeah, yeah. You nailed it. Like, it is both the good news and the bad news, because there is no way to fit Les Mis into 108 minutes at all. But on the other hand, we don't have to watch two and a half hours of Charles Lawton as Javert. That's true. But I feel like those 148 or 108 minutes are going to feel interminable because they're going to try to pack in a story that takes like three hours to tell in a very short amount of time. But we'll see. We'll see. I've been surprised before. Yeah, we'll see. Join us next week where we do that. And until then, uh, this was a movie. This was a movie. Because it definitely wasn't the operetta that it was before. (laughs) So it's got to be a movie. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Oh, sweet mystery of life at last I've